Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 3rd, 2021, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, The Problem with Religion, will be taught to us by Pastor Thomas Slager out of Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. Our sexual immorality, and I do mean all forms of sexual immorality, is God's wrath being revealed. Not acknowledging God has God handing us over to a debased mind, a futility of thinking that has no ability on its own to see the beauty and the loveliness of Christ. But the mercy of God is that he reveals it in his wrath so that you can apprehend the contrast between the wickedness of man and the loveliness of Christ. It is in fact an act of God's kindness because justice would be that God would in fact smudge us off of his earth rather than take the time to reveal his anger towards an obstinate and a disobedient people. If you have sexual immorality in your life, that is God's revelation to you, to repent and to take faith. This is the kindness of God. This morning, we are in Romans chapter two, verses one through 11. Before we get there, I wanna tell you a little revelation I had about uh, parenting. I realized real early on in parenting how good kids are at pointing the finger at other people. Do you know, you realize this, and, and it happens for all sorts of things. Sometimes in our house it happens over uh, what we're having for breakfast. Sometimes we'll wake up to something along the lines of, oh, mom, dad. And that's our favorite way to wake up, because who doesn't love to wake up that way? Um, so-and-so's having uh, like, like Sour Patch Kids for breakfast. <laughs> I'm thinking, great choice. <laughs> We've got Sour Patch Kids in the pantry, why not eat Sour Patch Kids? For breakfast. Well, what are you having for breakfast? Chocolate chips. Okay, you don't see an issue here? (laughs) So Sour Patch Kids bad, chocolate chips good. Like you can't, both of you are wrong. What are you having, Dad? He's gonna have donuts. (laughs) Like what's the, what do you mean what am I having? you're, You're a child, I'm an adult. I'm an adult, don't talk to me that way. And then we just start pointing the finger at each other and calling out each other's flaws and faults and and everything else. See, I've realized my kids are pretty good at this, but I've also learned I am even better. I am better at pointing the finger at other people's behavior than my kids will, maybe ever be. Really good uh, at realizing like flaws or really good at pointing out other people's faults and pointing out other people's sins. But the one thing I'm comforted about when it comes to finger pointing is that it's not just my kids who are good at finger pointing and it's not just this guy who's good at finger pointing. You know who else is really good at finger pointing? It's you and you, and you, and you, and y'all, all y'all in this section, I know y'all are good at finger pointing. We all do this. We all do this. So much so there's a saying for this, right? Every time you point the finger at someone else, what? There's three fingers pointing back at you. We're all guilty. We've all done something wrong. And and, and what I love, at the end of chapter one, Paul introduces this group of people. And because Paul is writing to a pretty religious group of some people who were actual Jesus followers and other people, they they, they were religious but not really Jesus followers, the tendency would be to point the finger at the end of chapter one, those people, those sinners. 
The people who struggle with that stuff, the people who are sinning in a way worse way than I am, because we all know this sin is worse than this sin, just like Sour Patch Kids are worse than chocolate chips, which are worse than donuts for breakfast. Some of them are acceptable and some of them are respectable, but some of them should just be singled out and judged. That's the heart that we have. And Paul is going to address that spot on. He's going to hit these people in chapter two and say, yeah, 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 the people at the end of chapter one were sinners, but guess who else is? All of y'all. Everyone's got something they struggle with. The end of chapter one, we could think of those people as the rebellious, the rebellious rejectors of God's law. The beginning of chapter two, the people we see there, it's the religious, the rule followers, those who rely on a set of do's and don'ts in hopes that they'd have salvation. And here's the deal. It's both the rebellious and the religious. They both need Jesus. That's what we're gonna see this morning. Romans chapter one, verses one through 11. Go ahead and grab a Bible. I'll read it, pray for us, and then we'll hop in. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray. God, while it's my voice that's been heard, we know this morning it's your word that's been spoken, and we trust your word is the authority for our life. God, if the world says differently than what the Bible says, or if the world says it's the Bible that's wrong, God, would we rest assured that it's not the Bible that it's wrong, but it's the world, it's the culture, it's the society in which we're surrounded. God, would we find our hope, would we find our faith, would we find our rest, would we find everything this morning in your son, Jesus Christ? Holy Spirit, I ask this morning that you'd open our eyes, that we'd see the sun more clearly that you'd open our ears, that we'd hear you, you'd open our mind, that we'd know the Father, you'd open our heart, that we would respond today with love and adoration for Jesus. God, everything we do this morning is for your glory, not ours, your glory and your glory alone. We love you and all God's people said, Amen. Religion is problematic. That's what we're going to look at this morning is the problem with religion. We're going to see three things from our passage that religion can do and one big thing that religion cannot do. Let's talk about the first can. Religion can make you judgy. Religion can make you judgy. You've heard this word before, right? It's like, yeah, they're kind of just, they're kind of judgy. Like they're great people and all, but I don't really want to go to the house for dinner because they're, they're kind of judgy. Um, what, if, what, what if we dress a certain way and they don't like that? And uh, well, I don't want to go out to dinner with them because if I order something they wouldn't order, then you know, they're kind of judgy. And, uh, you know, and we're judgy. We're judgy people. 
I can't believe she wore that. I can't believe he said that. Can you believe they bought that? These are all things that we say. Why? Because we're judgy. This is what religion does. Religion makes us judgy. Beginning in verse one, it says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, and you could put this in air quotes, the judge, practice the very same things. Therefore, because of everything that's been said, these sins at the end of chapter one, not just the sexual sins, but these other sins of greed, uh, calling God a liar, disobedient to parents. I mean, there's all sorts of things listed within the end of chapter one, and it's like, you don't have any ground to stand on judging these other people. Why? Because you do the same things. Let's talk about judging real quick. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15 says this, the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. We can judge right and wrong. Why? Because we have right and wrong and because we have the spirit of God living inside of us. If we have new life, if we've placed our faith in Christ, the promise is we're sealed with the Holy Spirit and he helps us um, determine what's right and what's wrong. We have convictions. So we are able to judge all things and know what's right and know what's wrong. But when it comes to judging people, that's not our role. That's not what God has sent us here for. Also notice the hypocrisy. These people judge others while they practice the same things. They judge other people while they're doing the same things. And Jesus was not cool with this. Go ahead and take your Bible. We're gonna, over a lot of times this morning, kind of turn to some interactions Jesus has had with the religious people in the New Testament. Matthew chapter seven, that's the first one I want us to look at. Matthew chapter seven, verses one through five. Uh, It's from the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous sermon of all time, the greatest sermon of all time. uh, And it's given by Jesus. Matthew chapter seven, beginning... In verse one, Jesus says this, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You're judging people for doing stuff that you're doing. You're telling people they're guilty when you yourself is just as guilty. And notice what he says in verse two. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's a theologian by the name of Francis Schaeffer, and Francis Schaeffer came up with this idea um, he liked to call the invisible tape recorder. And the invisible tape recorder, imagine there's a tape recorder hung around your neck at all times. Everything you think, everything you say, everything you do gets downloaded into this tape recorder. And then one day we stand before God and God just pushes play. And the standard of which we impressed on other people, the standard that we judged other people becomes the standard by which God judges you. This is terrifying. Now if that's the case, God pushes play, establishes a baseline and says, based upon the way you've judged others, that's how I'm gonna judge you. How many of us passed that test? Zero. None of us. If we were to be judged the same way we judge others and that was God's standard for judgment, we would all fail miserably. Why? Because we're hypocritical 
judges. Verse two, it says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We know God will judge people. We know he's the judge. And also he judges rightly. He judges justly. You and I, we are not good at that. So if God is the judge, let's leave the judging up to the judge, amen? Religion can make you judgy. That's the first thing it does. Secondly, religion can make you arrogant. Religion can make you arrogant. Verse three says, do you suppose, oh man, there's gonna be two questions that Paul asks here of these people. Do you suppose, and then secondly, do you presume? Do you suppose and do you presume? The first question he asks is, do you think you're better? Do you think you're better? The second question he's gonna ask is, do you think you know better? So do you think you are better and you think you know better? Verse three, do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? You think you're that much better than other people? You think your sins are so much more respectable than other people's sins that somehow God will judge you by a different standard? You think based upon how often you go to church and how much money you give or how you dress or the things you do or the things that you say, you think those things make you better? Now, logically, we're probably inclined to say, well, yeah, I am better. But God doesn't call us to think logically. He actually calls us to think theologically. It's interesting, this word here where he says, do you suppose, it's this Greek word, legizomai, logic, is built into that word. So you might think, based upon the way that you live, you're just better than other people. It's just not the case. But religion, synthesizing everything down to a set of do's and don'ts and do that consistently, it ends up making you arrogant. It ends up making you think you're better than other people. Let's look at Jesus' interaction with some more religious people. Luke chapter 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're gonna go left of the book of Romans again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 18. Um, Jesus fought a lot with religious people. I mean, they didn't come to blows that we know of, um, but, but they, they didn't get along real good because the religious people thought they had everything figured out. Um, talking with some friends, specifically my friends at the gym, they're kind of, uh, they're shocked by this idea that Jesus didn't like religious people, right? I've had a couple people come up to me and say, hey, Thomas, you're, you're pretty religious, right? I'm like, I sure hope not. I hope I'm not religious. And they're like, well, wait a minute, aren't you a pastor? I say, yeah. And you're not religious? So do you know the people in, in the Bible Jesus didn't like the most? It was the religious people. The people who thought they had everything figured out, the people who always spoke the right way and dressed the right way and, and always just did the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing before other people. Jesus wasn't so hip on that. So Jesus didn't like religious people. I don't want to be uh, disliked by Jesus. Therefore, I don't want to be religious. I just want to walk with Jesus. Luke chapter 18, um, beginning in verse nine. He also told this parable, Jesus told this parable, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He told this parable about arrogance to a group of arrogant people. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, um, think good guy, holy guy, righteous guy, really just self-righteous guy. Think arrogant guy. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. This is uh, synonymous with like sinner. We're talking about someone who wasn't walking with God. 
The Pharisee, standing by himself, again, the religious person, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, and this is, this is rude, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the sinner, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, that's arrogance, will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Arrogance is, is anti-Jesus. And because arrogance is anti-Jesus, arrogance is anti-Christian. To think that we are better than others simply because we follow the do's and the don'ts and we say the right things and we make sure we don't say the wrong thing, it does not make us better. Do we suppose that we are somehow off the hook because we live a seemingly better life? The answer is just no. You are not off the hook. We don't escape God's judgment. Verse four, do you presume? Now this word presume is interesting. This word presume means to feel contempt for someone or something because it's thought to be bad or without value. It's to look down on something or someone because you think you or your way is better. So first question he asks them, do you think you're better? You think you're better? And now the question is, you think you know better? You think you know better? Do you presume on, do you think you know better than the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Uh, if you're reading a King James version, your word for presume might be despise. You despise God's patience. You despise his forbearance. You despise his kindness. All the while not realizing it's those things, his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience that's meant to lead other people to repentance. Now, how do these people think they know better? Because these people don't want forgiveness and repentance for the people at the end of chapter one. These people want wrath, judgment, destruction, condemnation. In their religion, they look towards the rebellious and think, God, would you just squish them? Just squish them, get rid of them. Totally misses the heart of Jesus. Second Peter chapter three, verses eight and nine, it says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the wish of the religious is that some would perish. I wish God would just destroy them. Wrath, condemnation, fury, now. Why? Because they're sinners. Look at them. But God's being kind to them. He's being patient towards them. Forbearance, it's restraint. He's holding back, back the wrath, the judgment, the fury, the condemnation. Now, don't get me wrong. That, that will come. That's who God is. If we say God is love, of course he's love. He's also just. He's also righteous. He is the judge, so he will judge sin. But in people's life now, he's being patient towards them because he wants to see them repent. God's heart is for repentance, but in our own arrogance, in our own religiosity, we think our way is better. Religion can make you arrogant. Third thing religion can do, religion can harden your heart. 
Religion can harden your heart. Verse five, it says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the the religious people we're talking about here. You're telling me the religious people are storing up wrath? Think about it like this. Every time you sin, you drop a dump, a little, little, little droplet of water into a cup. Okay, and, and judgment is so much more than this, but maybe the illustration will help. We're adding, adding judgment. We have sin, more judgment. Sin, more judgment. Sin, more judgment. Sin, more judgment. Eventually, that judgment is poured out. And we stand before God and face God for everything we've said and everything we've done. And even these religious people will stand before God and give an account for the things that they've done. It says you have a hard and impenitent heart. What is a heart? We're not just talking about like the blood pumper in your chest. When the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about the center of our convictions. It's our personality. It's who we are. It's where belief and where faith, where trust come from. Jesus says, out of your heart overflows good things and evil things. That's where good and evil lie within. They're within our heart. And here, when he's talking about our heart, uh, it's hard, it's hardened. Well, how does a heart get hardened? If you look at 1 Timothy chapter four, uh, it speaks of this idea of a seared conscience. A seared conscience. In other words, your conscience has been burned and it's not working the way it used to. You're so caught up in like unrepentant sin that something in your life that used to bother you doesn't even bother you anymore. It's just not that big of a deal. It's just one time, it's fine. Nah, it's not a big deal. It's fine. There's grace. God will forgive me. Think of it like this. The first time you watched a PG-13 movie with your mom and dad, how uncomfortable was that? Mom and dad, remember the first time you watched a PG-13 movie with your student? How uncomfortable was that? Because you're like, uh, should we? I don't know. This doesn't feel right. This is weird. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here comes that scene. What are they going to do? But then over time, you kind of just get used to that and it's like, nah, it's just part of the movie. Now we're watching all sorts of stuff. No, babe, 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 don't turn it off. It's part, it's part of the plot line. If we miss this scene, we won't understand what's really going on later. We have to watch this. Huh? We've gone from uncomfortable to we'll watch anything. It's a searing of the conscience. Now, don't apply this whole thing just to movies. It's everything. Our heart becomes hardened to sin. The things maybe that we did early on in our Christianity that we were like, ah, I just feel convicted for that. I feel convicted about that. And then, but then it becomes one of these more respectable type of sins, and, and you wouldn't point the finger at that sin. You point fingers at the big sin. But now, all of a sudden, our, our, our conscience has been seared. The conviction we used to have about something has kind of been numbed. Um, the voice of the Holy Spirit in our life, which used to be so loud, now it's kind of dampened and deafened because of the own, our own sin in our life. And that's what he's saying about these people. You have a hard heart. You're just so hard-hearted. And for these people, the hardness of heart expresses itself in arrogance because they think they're better, they think they know better, and ultimately expresses itself in their condemnation of other people and their life. Okay, let's look again. Jesus and some Pharisees, John chapter three. Jesus and some religious people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Let's look at John chapter three. John chapter three. Now, you've probably heard John three sixteen. great Bible verse. Uh, you probably have it on your wall at home or on a coffee cup or on a T-shirt or something else that's cheesy Christian stuff. 
Um, and it's a great verse. So if there's a verse that should be on a coffee cup, I think I'd advocate for that one. But there's more to it. There's more to it with John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen? God sent his son. If we believe in him, we don't perish, we have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, Jesus came into this world to see people saved, to see people repent of their sin, place their faith in God, and walk with God. He did not come to condemn the world because people are already condemned. Now, if Jesus did not come into the world to condemn people, why do Jesus' people feel like it's their job? It shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. But we are pretty good at this whole finger-pointing, judgy condemnation thing, aren't we? But if we're gonna walk the way of Jesus, it means we walk as Jesus did. Now, yes, Jesus is the judge. He's the only righteous and just judge who judges unhypocritically. That's not me and you. We're bad judges. To walk in the way of Jesus is to walk in the way of grace. It's to walk in the way of mercy. It's to walk in the way that other people might see the beauty, the majesty, the glory, the grace of Jesus, repent of their sins and turn to him and walk with the Lord. John chapter eight, verses eight through 11. Go ahead and go a few chapters to the right in the gospel of John. John chapter eight, one through 11. We have some more religious folks. Uh, Let's see how Jesus interacts with them. John chapter eight, beginning in verse one, it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, when the law of Moses commanded us to to stone such a woman, what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Interesting. They're so hard-hearted. They're so arrogant. Um, They desire judgment and condemnation so much, they're willing to have a woman brought before Jesus and murdered just to test him, to see what he would do. Let's see the way Jesus responds. After all, Jesus is the judge. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. To this point, they've done a great job of pointing fingers at who the sinner is. It's obvious. It's the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Yes, that's the sin. But Jesus says, if you don't have three fingers pointing back, then go ahead, pick up a stone and throw it. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Why? Jesus didn't come in to condemn the world. If they didn't believe in him, they're already condemned. He doesn't have to condemn them. He came to save them. He says, go and from now on sin no more. Get it together, lady. Walk with the Lord. Stop doing the things you're doing. You're gonna destroy your life. Jesus hates sin. He's not gonna advocate us to continue on in a life of sin, but he's also not gonna condemn people right there in their sin. He's patient, kind, 
forbearance. He's restrained when it comes to his wrath and judgment so that people in this life would repent of their sin and walk with Jesus. Now, yes, he's the judge. Yes, there's wrath. Yes, there's condemnation. That's not for us to decide. It's for Jesus to decide. Religion can harden your heart. There's three things religion can do. Religion can make you judgy. Religion can make you arrogant. And religion can harden your heart. There's one thing this passage says religion can't do. Religion can't save you. It can't. Religion can do a lot of things. It can make you look good in this life, like a good guy. That's a good guy. That's a good, that's just a good lady. We all know people like this. It's good. It's religious. I can't save him. Verse six, he says, he will render to each one according to his works. Everyone will stand before God and be judged by their works. Verse seven, to those who, pa- those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, interesting thing Paul's doing here, okay? He's saying, if we wanna play, play by works, by works-based salvation, that you can do a right thing, say a right thing, and be saved by God. If we're gonna talk about works, let's talk about works, and here's the deal. If we're gonna look at works, he's judging everyone by works. Interesting thing in verse seven, he says, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So if you're a good guy, a good girl, do all the right things, you're patient, you do good, you seek glory, you seek honor, you seek immortality, it says God gives those good people eternal life. Kind of sounds like he's advocating a works-based salvation. That if I do all the right things and say all the right things, then God will have me. I can do enough good to get into heaven. But here's the deal. We are in demolition phase of the gospel when it comes to the book of Romans. Okay, in demolition phase, nothing really looks good. We're tearing it all back down to the studs before we build it back up, and that's what he's doing here in Romans. He's bringing everything back down to the studs. So he says, yeah, works-based salvation. Let's talk about that for a second. Salvation is available for those who only do good. Do good, never sin. Be perfect. He references this in chapter two, verse six. He references it in 2.11 and also in 2.13. But as we go on and start building this case against humanity, talking about the gospel, yes, if you can just be perfect and good, God will let you into heaven. Here's the problem. When we get to chapter three, sin prevents everyone from doing good. Sin prevents everyone from doing good. Yeah, so just be good, do the right thing, and you'll get into heaven. Here's the issue Sin won't let you do that. And because sin won't let you do good, no one is good. Therefore, no one's righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, be good, you'll get in. Issue, no one's good. No one's good. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. This is both groups, by the way. Um, Chapter one, people are self-seeking. They're seeking after their own sin. Chapter two, people are also self-seeking. They're self-seeking their own righteousness. Both are guilty before a holy and just God. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. But again, sin prevents you from doing good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Everyone is guilty, no one gets treated differently. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, even the so-called good people, 
even the religious people, even the people who think they're better and have the opportunity and the right to point the finger at others and other people's sin. and That's a big sin. That's a bad sin. My stuff's not that bad. My sins are more secret and respectable. But those public, out there, lifestyle sins, those are the ones God will never forgive. It's just wrong. One more passage, Matthew 7, 22 and 23, talking about religious people. On that day, the day of judgment, Jesus will say, or many will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we do all the right stuff? Didn't we say all the right things? Didn't our life look like the life of the believers in the New Testament? Didn't we do the things? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The peoples whose lives were epitomized by living life according to the law, Jesus calls them a worker of lawlessness. Did all the things, said all the things, did not know Jesus, and Jesus did not know them. The group of people at the end of chapter one, it's the rebellious friends, the rebellious need Jesus. The group of people in the beginning of chapter two, it's the religious friends, the religious need Jesus. Where do you see yourself this morning? Do you need Jesus? The answer is yes. Yes, you need Jesus. I wanna close um, just by asking you a few questions. I'm gonna invite the band out. Two different groups of people represented in Romans 1 and 2. We have the rebellious, those who reject God and his rules. They reject God and his laws. They reject God and his son. The second group of people relies on God's laws. They're rule followers. They're religious. They both need Jesus. Where do you see yourself this morning? Do you see yourself living in a state of rebellion with no regard for God's law? If that's you, man, repent. Repent, turn away from that lifestyle, turn away from your sin and come to Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. You can come to Christ this morning. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And maybe you're looking at your life this morning thinking like, there's other people in the world God might want. It's not me. I've done too much. I've said too much. I'm too far gone. You're not. You're not. He loves you. He wants you. He came to die for you. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and listen, we don't make him the Lord. We only acknowledge that he is. He is the Lord. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we shall be saved. And friends, believe does not just mean like, I acknowledge he was like a a guy in history, good teacher, great rabbi, good moral dude. That's not what believe means. Believe is trust. We trust in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We trust in our heart that he came and lived a perfect life that you and I can't live. And to be honest, we say we try. We don't. We don't. We can't live a perfect life, but he came and lived a perfect life on our behalf. Then he died the death that you and I deserve to die to pay the penalty for our sins. But then some crazy happened. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead to defeat death that in Christ, you and I can truly live. 
Maybe you find yourself down a different path this morning, walking a different road, a different way than the way of Jesus. Friends, believe, confess, repent, and come to faith in Christ. If you are in Christ, I want to ask a few questions. First question is this, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as the helpless sinner who God would be right and just in judging? Or like the arrogant Pharisee, do you see yourself as better than others? When you see others sin, do you do what the world does and wag your finger, point the finger, and shake your head? Or do you see that that person's heart is no different than yours apart from the gospel of Christ? Do you think you can stand before God's judgment and pass his test of perfection? You desire condemnation for others, you desire mercy and grace and repentance and forgiveness. The rebellious need Jesus. The religious need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. May we be the church, may we be the people who carry forth that gospel message, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for saving us. Thanks for doing the unthinkable, leaving your place on high and humbling yourself to the point of being a servant. More than that, humbling yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, I'm not sure where everyone's at this morning. I'm not sure if they see themselves living in rebellion, if they see themselves living in religiosity. God, neither of those things can save us. Neither of those things can make us righteous. Only your son, Jesus, can. So this morning, we turn to you. We turn to you, God, where we fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Would we fix on you, our eyes on you, the way, the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father. Friends, finger pointing is the way of the world. It is the way of the world. Turn on your Facebook, your social media. Everyone just point the finger at everyone else for the problems going on in the world. Turn on the news. Everyone just point the finger at everyone else for what's going on, all the problems in the world. This is the way of the world. That's bad, that's bad. Their sin's bad, their sin's worse. But this guy is okay. Friends, that's the way of the world. It's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not constantly pointing out everyone's sin. The way of Jesus is finding sinners and pointing them back to God. May that be us. May we not be judgy. May we not be arrogant. May we not be hard-hearted. Would we have the heart of God that desires mercy, kindness, and repentance for those in our community? Amen? Go point people to Jesus this week. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.